such a great time of worship as we continue to have in these weeks where we're separated and, and not necessarily together in person, but to get to be together virtually has continued to be such a gift. I know for my family and so many of you uh, have shared the same thing. So it's great to be gathered together again virtually for our final week in what we have entitled our Transformed series. It's a really fun series where both Kevin and I have enjoyed taking a look at the life of the great King David as we walk him through this incredibly difficult time where we've taken him from really, we're going to look at the other one today, but two of his biggest follies through his time in leadership as king. One is assuredly that idea of the, the picture of Bathsheba and kind of what's going on there. And then today we'll look at this whole census idea. Uh, you know, two things are really going to happen today. We'll at some point kind of bring this specific sermon to a close, but we're also going to bring the series to a close as we talk about walking this process all the way out. We, we've talked about it a lot over the last couple of weeks, but we, we look at this idea today of what it means for us to live in a constant state of surrender in a life of restoration. Yeah, to do that, we're going to look at this idea of God really as a craftsman, as the master craftsman, I think a concept that can be challenging for us at times. And so we're going to take that idea. So to play that out, what I've done for us today in my study this week, I found what I think is a very cool example of craftsmanship. And I want to show it to you now. It's just a quick 45-second video, but turn your attention to that for just a second. That's something. It's incredible. At 12 meters long, it'd be a little over 39 feet total. Uh, 30 tons would put it coming in at about 60,000 pounds. And four years to complete, as you can see here, just an insane level of detail as a master woodcarver looked at a thousand-year-old camphor tree. And he saw something that no one else could have seen you see, he took these four years to meticulously fashion every minuscule detail while keeping the whole work of art in mind, and that is the mark of a master craftsman, to be able to work on the minuscule in order to achieve the monumental. As we close out our series today, this is the concept of the craftsman that I think challenges us so much as human beings, the idea of what does it mean for us to sit back and to genuinely hand our lives over into the hands of a master craftsman, the type of craftsman who continues to constantly chisel away at his children in the process of making them over, just like we said, from messes into masterpieces. So as we wrap this up today and we focus into this uh, life of David one more time in this series, would you bow your heads and let's open in a word of prayer. Uh, God, I really do. I just ask that as we bring uh, four weeks of sometimes difficult uh, material together and the preaching that is, I know, weighed heavy on Kevin and myself, 
that as we bring that together today, Lord, would you just be with all of us as we apply what you've been teaching us, as we take it and we put it into a place where we understand in some of the deeper ways where your Holy Spirit is working in us that we might continue to surrender more and more of our lives over to you to come to a place where we truly do recognize that you are the master craftsman and that we are best when surrendered to your hand. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, so the last couple of weeks, uh, we started off in chapter 12 and kind of focused on that. That was that Bathsheba incident. We walked through that and all of the many things that David learned as his sin affected others. And what we're gonna do today is we're gonna fast forward all the way to the end of the book of 2 Samuel. We're gonna be in chapter 24. David at this point is kind of uh, moved on from the Bathsheba thing. The Lord has brought a lot of conclusion to that and David's seen a bunch of favor. There's been a lot of things that have come out of it. He's expanded the territory of Israel in in a big, big way uh, since chapter 12. But he's older now. And he's kind of at a point where if you were thinking to yourself, boy, uh, David should really know better, you'd be right. But as the book of Job teaches us, the experts have no corner on wisdom and getting old doesn't guarantee good sense. As we move through the chapter today, it's a really long chapter, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tell you parts of the story, but I'm gonna focus in on some really key verses and apply them to our modern Christian walk. The goal, of course, being that we take this whole series where we've been looking at what it looks like for us to be transformed, really from beings that are walking under our own power to surrendering the title of today's sermon to God's. And so as we do that, let's take a look at these first two verses in chapter 24. We're gonna bring those up on the screen and here's what it says. It says, again, meaning this has happened before, right? Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. We're gonna start by asking two questions today. The first one is, what is God doing? And the second one's gonna be, what is David doing? Okay, we've had two passages, both last week and this week, where we've seen God do things, and it's really easy for us to go, you know, I thought God was good, I'm not sure that I see these actions as God being so good. And yet, we know from our study in the scriptures, and I would affirm this to you today, if you don't know this, that God is not the author of evil. But it says right here, Rustin, it says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel and that he incited David. This is where I'm so grateful for places where the Bible has parallel accounts of things that are going on. Now, we know that God's not the author of evil. That's affirmed over and over and over again. And yet, we have this that we gotta wrestle with. And so what we've got is we have a parallel account of what's going on in 2 Samuel. It was written 500 years later, and that's gonna be in 1 Chronicles. It's kind of a history of Israel. And so this is the way this exact phrase is said in 1 Chronicles 21, verse one. It says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So which was it? What's going on? I found a really helpful note. I think sometimes you guys think as pastors we have like this special group of books that we study for sermons and stuff, but here's something that you have access to in your own life. It's the ESV Study Bible Notes, and here's what it says in this little area. It says, the Lord allowed, it's a really important word, the Lord allowed Satan to incite David. God himself never does evil, but sometimes he uses evil moral agents, specifically demons and sinful human beings, to accomplish his purposes. 
That's what God's doing. So who's the responsibility on? Where does this great folly that is going to turn out very poorly for a lot of people today, where's the responsibility? It's on David. Because the Lord allowed something. The Lord allowed David to be tested. He allows you and me to be tested all the time. But what do we have access to? Obedience. We don't have to disobey God. So let's ask the next question. What is David doing? Well, David finds himself in this place where he is two things, and those two things are things that we fall victim to a lot. He is vulnerable, and he is isolated. David's vulnerability looks like this. He, he's kind of getting to a point in, in the story where he's older. In fact, if you back up a few chapters, and I'm not gonna read it for you today, but to chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, it tells us this. It tells us that the people of Israel and Judah are not pleased with David. They don't think he's doing a great job as a king. And in fact, chapter 20 starts to tell us about rebellions that are rising up within Israel. Judah is remaining steadfast to David, but Israel is upset. David's also a warrior king. David's the giant slayer. He's the one who built an entire reputation on riding back from being the warrior and conquering giants, literally. If you go back to chapters 20, 21, and 23, it starts to tell us some of these crazy stories about how David goes in against giants and then all of a sudden finds himself a little overwhelmed. Men have to come in from his mighty men and save him, and they finally get to a point where they look at David and they go, hey man, the price is just simply too high if you die. So they've asked him to hold back from battle. You know what that produces in a warrior king and a leader? Insecurity. David is deeply insecure at this point in his life and he's sitting back unable to defend himself and unable and unsure that he can defend his nation which seems to be kind of crumbling around him. And in the midst of this, the enemy is there. As the Lord said, he allows the enemy to come in, and just like Chronicles tells us, here comes the enemy. He's such an opportunist. He comes in, and Satan's basically sitting there in the midst of all of David's insecurity. He goes, hey, you know what would make you feel really good? If you knew how big the nation was. No, 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 it's not pride. Don't worry about it. It's actually wisdom. You see, if you knew how many people you had around you, you'd not only feel better, but it's on their best interest as well because it'll take you and it'll walk it all the way out. You'll know how big the army was. You'll know how big your uh, group is and you can go from there and just go ahead and do it. It's a test. Where should David's security come from? The fact that he was anointed by God. The fact that he's been put in this place and if the time comes where the Lord wants to remove him, David should be in a spot where he goes, that's absolutely fine. But David's gonna make a choice and it's gonna be very costly to create his own security rather than going to the Lord to feel secure. That is what pride looks like. And the reason the census is so wrong because he's getting ready to number the people is because it's based in his pride. It's also, and this is what census were for, it leads to taxation, it leads to all these other things. When you look at why kings took census, they were never for a good reason. And so David's pride is running amok and that's what leaves him so vulnerable in the midst of this scenario. The other thing is, David's isolated. If David were close to God like he was back right after the Bathsheba incident, don't you think he would have recognized the voice of the enemy just a little better? Oh, gosh, I can hear that. You know what? That doesn't sound right. I'm not sure numbering the people's a good idea. He's isolated from God, and he's isolated from man. He's not listening to the godly wisdom around him, and we're gonna look at that right now. This is what David's isolation looks like, verses three and four of chapter 24. 
But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does the Lord, why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Gosh, it was right there. By the time you guys see how this thing plays out, you are gonna sit and recognize that Joab is the hero of the story. This all could have been avoided. And in our lives, we should pray for friends just like Joab. Here's what I love about him. He is the perfect combination of truth and love. Joab doesn't come in. Joab's right. He's completely right. And he doesn't just roll into town and go, David, this is so stupid. You're being so prideful. Please don't do that. He's not drunk on his own rightness. He just simply comes in and just goes, hey, listen, I wish the best for you, David. Matter of fact, I wish that the kingdom would flourish so much that in your golden years, you would sit back and see that it's increased a hundred times since you were put into leadership. That your, your leadership would thrive and flourish. But can I just ask a tough question? Why do you long for this thing? Joab sees the pride that is behind the census and recognizes that it is going to lead to some terrible places. But he understands his boundaries because when the king finally looks at him and says, hey, guess what? When the king's word prevails, okay, man, it's on you. He doesn't fight him. He goes out and he does what he's told. A little modern application for us today. Do you have a Joab in your life? And do you have the courage to be a Joab? Because the reality is, if you don't have anybody in your life that has this type of access to you, to come in and to lovingly, not for their benefit, but probably at their cost, because it's awkward and there's conflict, but will come in and is courageous enough to ask you the questions, why are you going after this thing? Why are you in this conflict with your spouse right now? Do you see that you're wrong? Own the parts of this that are yours. Or your boss, why are you going after it this way? Why are you locked into this thing with your kids? What's going on between me and you? You see, those are the parts about being a Joab that are hard for somebody else. Do you have the courage to do that in somebody else's life? To love them at the cost of conflict, knowing it will be hard for you but potentially beneficial to them. Because this is a tool that all of us are in need of in order to truly walk out a life of restoration. A surrendered life to God has to be willing to look at the fact that we can't be vulnerable to sin and not be aware of it. And the best way to prepare is do not be isolated. So let's fast forward, we're gonna go to verse nine and we're gonna see how this whole thing works out, all right? So let's take a look at verse nine, it says this. And Joab gave the sum. So the the census has been taken. Joab's coming back. David has been anticipating this moment for quite some time now. And it says, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I, gave, for I have done very foolishly. Guys, this is the moment. This should be the moment where David is sitting back and going, oh, I feel so much better. I got 1.3 million people at my disposal, valiant men who will pick up the sword and fight for me. 
Why is this moment not good? Why is David's heart struck? Because sin is a liar. It always has been from the time of David to now, and sin is sitting there telling him a lie. It took nine months and 20 days to take this census. That's what the scriptures tell us. Guess why? Just like, think about how hard it is for them to take a census today, and we have like email and phones. Like, when you guys get the census stuff, we see the commercials all the time. This is so important. Fill out your census. What do you do? You get it, and you're like, what's in it for me? I don't care. We throw it away. They had to literally go around the entire nation. It took nine plus, almost 10 months to count person by person in every tent. And for nine months and 20 days, pride has just been lying to David going, oh, it's gonna feel so much better. You're gonna feel so good once this happens. And once this occurs, it's finally the moment that David's been waiting for where pride should give birth to this great feeling but that great feeling is nowhere to be found. Do you know why? Because sin's a liar. Pride has been sitting back and feeding him this nonsense for so long, and it does the same thing in our own lives. It destroys everything it touches. That's what sin does. Take a look at this quote. This is in a biography that I read uh, uh, on David's life, and it was really good, but it's a, a quote in there from a guy named C. Neil Strait, and it says this. Sin does not serve well as a gardener of the soul. It landscapes the contour of the soul until all that is beautiful has been made ugly, until all that is high is made low, until all that is promising is wasted. Then life is like a desert, parched and barren. It is drained of purpose. It is bleached of happiness. Sin, then, is not wide, but wasteful. It is not a gate, but only a grave. That's where David's at. Sin has been sitting there promising this paradise in his life, and yet he gets to this point where his life has never been more bleak and bleached. He is struck again. He is in this moment where he goes, oh, this is far too familiar. The last time I was crushed like this, it was the Bathsheba incident. I'm back in this place. How did I get here again? And David's having that deeply recognition, conviction moment where the Holy Spirit has completely wrecked him and he's standing there going, I don't know what happens next. Let me ask you a question. What role does sin play in your life? Is it friend or foe? Are you actively searching it out or are you hiding it? Are you asking God to search and destroy or are you hoping that he leaves you alone so that you can continue to move on and simply be comfortable? Do you believe that sin is a terrible gardener, that it will turn your life into a parched, bleached, barren desert, or do you truly believe that your life under your power and authority will create a paradise at some point? Guys, running and hiding sin is hiding spiritual cancer. We do it all the time. I'm guilty of it so many times in my own life, but I recognize that this quote is so spot on. David's life is a perfect picture of it. We hide sin, and it's just like sitting there and going, you know, I got some pain in my side, and I got a long family history of cancer. But you know what? I'm fine. I'm doing okay. No, no, I don't want to go in and check anything out. That would be a little cumbersome, and oh, man, what if they found something? You know what we end up doing spiritually? We end up allowing these spiritual cancers to sit there. We die a, a slow death of the soul instead of having the quick spiritual surgery with the great physician. 
We sit there and we just go, I don't want him to find anything. No, God, nothing to see here. Move on to my small group. Move on to my friends. Have you met my neighbors? Go search their lives. They're a mess. And we hide these cancerous little things. We're vulnerable. We get isolated. And the Lord sits back and goes, if you would just let me start working on you. I'm the master craftsman. I've got the plan. I promise I'm good. Let's see what the price of David's sin was. We'll fast forward to verse 15. David has a a pretty incredible deal going on here. Uh, David, again, has these prophets around him. One of them was a seer, his name Gad, and he sits there and he comes to David. David is sitting back and Gad comes to him and he says, you got a choice. It's one of the craziest passages in the Bible. God actually gives David the choice. You can pick between three years of famine, you can pick between uh, one other option and then the one that he actually picks, and this is where David's so smart. He's stupid in his sin, but he's really smart. The last one is a pestilence that'll last for about three days. And David says this, he looks at God and he goes, I trust you to make that decision. And God actually chooses the most gracious of the options. And so he's sitting back and he says this, all right, you do it, God, and so this is what happens. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Gosh, David's been here before, hasn't he? His sin didn't just cost the life of one now. Remember, last time he did, did this with Bathsheba, he lost a son, and he watched his sin affect someone else. Now, 70,000 men are passing away because of David's pride. And again, I know that God is good. There's something in this where he works a plan to the best of what's going on. Who knows how many people would have died if David's pride had continued to run amok and the Lord brought it to a quick end right here by bringing this prophet forward. Here's the deal. When we look at the life of David, the life of David is a constant ongoing process of doing better but not done yet. God in his goodness, and I want us to see this because this is the gift of time. So many of us are frustrated with time. It's either moving too fast or moving too slow. I wanted you to see that when we say God's timing is perfect, this is what we mean. God chose to be gracious. David's been prideful for most of his life, I would assume. But he dealt with sexual immorality back here. Can you imagine if God at the same time would have said, we're cleaning the big sins out all at one time. David almost died on the ground. He was so overwhelmed with what happened to his son because of his sin of sexual immorality and adultery with Bathsheba. Can you imagine if God would have gone, hey, we're not done yet, bro. Stay on that ground and keep mourning because guess what? Pride's next. We're tackling that one right now too. You see, time is the gift that allows us to experience God's grace so that we sit back and we recognize he knows David can't handle both those things back here. And so God brings that revelation later in life and he does that one clear down the road. My seminary mentor said years ago, he said that when he works with men and he works with them in leadership, they typically fall to one of three reasons, gold, girls, and glory. David's batting 66% in his time as king. Gold wasn't really a big deal. He was the wealthiest man on the planet. But when it comes to girls and it comes to pride, which is the glory piece, David has been sitting back and constantly falling into these traps that the enemy's been laying for men and women for all of eternity. The tricks are the same. We may think we're so far advanced and our culture's so different, but the reality is that the hardest times in David's life and in Israel's are when he is in sin. It's when his life looks most like a desert. So let me ask an application question. Kevin and I stood up on this stage 
12 months ago, last summer, and we sat and we preached on the Sermon of the Mount and we talked about, hey, this is about heart change. Our hearts need to change. We have to be willing to change internally if we wanna see external results. And it's 12 months later. We're talking about heart change. We're talking about how to walk a surrendered life with God. Are you any closer to God than you were last summer? Has your heart changed? Do you think differently about your sin? Are you any more willing to allow the Lord to search you just like we talked about last summer? We're better in the hands of the Lord than we are under our own power and authority. And here we are this summer again and we're saying the exact same stuff. We're studying a completely different part of the Bible. We're not in the New Testament. Study in Matthew. We're in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. But the message of being surrendered to God is still here. And my question is, do you still think that life is a destination? Oh gosh, I'm so glad I learned this thing. Now we're done. Okay, Lord, I'm back and I'm good. Or has your heart posture changed to where you now are far more surrendered, recognizing that the Lord is gonna continue to work on your life and work on your life? My recovery program teaches me a really great phrase. We claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. Isn't that a freeing statement? I don't have to be spiritually perfect. We don't have any chance of pulling it off anyway. But to sit back and to claim progress is so radically different than to claim perfection. I'll tell you, for years, I'll, I'll kind of go back to some of my own experiences. For so many years, I really feared the correcting hand of the Lord. Uh, reason being that it had taken a pretty harsh correction to get my attention. And so for a lot of years, as I walked those things out and continued to walk forward, I feared that it was gonna take hurricanes like what I experienced in 2009 to get my attention. And somebody finally looked at me and it was so sweet, but they go, well, Rustin, you have to recognize that you're actively trying to walk with the Lord now. That's really different than running from him. You see, when you continue to seek the Lord, you can hear his whisper. I'd always said, the Lord's got two tones of voice with me, a whisper and a two by four. And in 2009, he was done whispering. You'll go to your knees one way or the other. I landed on my knees in 2009 because my legs were broken. I couldn't run any further. To be honest, it was unsafe for me to run any further. But when I started to live life actively seeking God, it's not that the circumstances were perfect. It's not that there wasn't hard things, but what I had mitigated was these radical swings out of bounds that my sin was leading me to painful consequences. That part, ladies and gentlemen, we do have control over. And we have to be willing to allow ourselves to go, hey, when you hear the whisper of the Lord back here and go, oh, Lord, absolutely, thank you so much. Had David not been so isolated, he would have heard the Lord clear back when Joab said, this is probably a bad idea. But instead, he wrote it all the way out and the two by four was required to bring him back in. I know that sounds so harsh, but gosh, the love of the Lord has him correcting the ones he loved. He will not let you wander. And at times, he'll bring us back in. The end of the book is, is really powerful. This is kind of the last verse in the book of 2 Samuel. Let's take a look at it now. It says, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So this plague kind of goes on. David sees uh, the angel of the Lord who's the one who's actively kind of moving against uh, Israel at that point, fulfilling what has been allowed and there's this funny kind of deal where all of a sudden, that is literally the last words, and the plague was averted from Israel. The next time we hear about David is the beginning of 1 Kings, and he's literally an invalid, just laying in a bed. 
He can't even move. It's the end of his kingship. So this is how it ends. And you gotta ask the question like, really, that's it? There's no beautiful bow? It doesn't tell us, and David is this awesome, amazing king, you know, the Lord and David don't go off to braid each other's hair. It's just this kind of instance where you're sitting here going, what's the point? Like, David's last thing that we hear about is this giant mess that he's created, and 70,000 people are killed. How is this a good story? Because here's the message that we miss so many times in 2 Samuel. It's telling us what happened, and it's telling us that God never stopped teaching David tough lessons. He never quit. He sat there and he looked at him and just said, hey, this is what's going on and you are either going to walk with me or I'm going to get your attention and bring you back in. You see the surrendered life or the restored life walking out, some of the circumstances that we have, it's a humble life. And it's so important because here's what happens. It sets us up to continue to learn and to continue to make headway. One of the most encouraging things for me is when I talk to a 60 or a 70 year old and they look at me and they go, gosh, I still got a long way to go. As a guy in his 30s, that overwhelms me a lot because that means I've got a monumentally long way to go. But I love that thought that they're in their 60s and 70s and they're sitting there and they're going, yeah, no, the Lord's not done with me. I'm still trying to refine things all the time. You see, when we look at this series as a whole, what we see is that it's really been a study in how to yield ourselves to the master. You go back to that first week, it's us sitting there and recognizing his voice. It's that we hear it for what it is. In week two, we kind of learn to turn away from the things that have got our attention and back to him. That's how conviction works and that's what repentance looks like. We learn how to walk towards him even when the distance seems great. And lastly, today, we learn how to be ready to continue to take on the next journey. You see, David's never done. He's constantly being taught by the Lord. But we take these journeys on with the Lord when his timing requires it of us so that when it's all said and done, when it's all over and someone looks at us, we look at the one who has calmed the storms, who has curated the precious moments and crafted what will look like a perfectly executed life. But deep down in our hearts, we know it was the furthest thing from perfectly executed. Instead, it was perfectly orchestrated. It's like this picture right back here. People sit back and when it takes a lifetime to do, (laughs) we're unaware of how much progress we've made. It's like that graph we looked at last week. There's so many times where we sit back and we don't recognize that the Lord has been meticulously chiseling away at a part of our life. He's been sitting there and kind of working and grinding and grinding and we're annoyed and we sit back and we tell, finally we tell a friend, I'm just so angry all the time. I just so wrestle with anger and I'm frustrated and they look at you and they go, you know, you always say that about yourself. I actually don't see you to be that angry. You've actually been really patient with me and you haven't done the anger thing in quite some time. I've seen a lot of growth. And all of a sudden, an area that just used to be a messy piece of camphor wood, you start to recognize your mentalities haven't caught up with the work that the Lord has done, and you look closer and you go, oh my gosh, (laughs) there's a sweet little house that's been carved there. There's There's detail. The mess has been turned into a masterpiece in this area, and I didn't even, I don't know how that happened. If that's your experience, then you've clung to the master and you've allowed him to chisel away at you so that you look much more like him and a lot less like the mess that you started. The life that reflects that is the life that says, Lord, I'm gonna keep my eyes on you. 
Because if I don't, what I know is that I'm going to fall apart. That's why it's so important for us to fall in love with Jesus. Because this world is gonna work so hard to try and draw your attentions to anything else. The world and the enemy, who's the master of this thing, is trying to sit back and go, hey, will you settle for good enough? (laughs) You know, if you ignore God, you can actually have a fairly comfortable life. You can sit back and kind of just chill and he'll kind of leave you alone. You can be comfortable and it'll be good enough. I don't know a lot of people who are happy with good enough. What I know is that we have journeys on the horizon for us because God's got a plan. God's got a masterpiece that he's looking to curate with each and every one of us. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be president or it's gonna be this big public thing. It just means that you and the Lord have something to do together. It's that he's gonna remake you, that you will impact others and that you will go out with the talents that you have and you will go from just good enough to God is enough. You can walk out a life that looks radically different, but here's what's so hard. Everything in our American lives is telling us to be free of a master. As Western thinkers, we have been given freedom to the point where we really do believe to some degree, I don't even know how to, how to think about a master. I don't want an overseer. I don't want someone sitting there, even God at times, to be telling me what to do. I think I'm pretty good at this. Well, David was a pretty cool guy and it didn't work out great for him. We all have these moments where we sit back and we fight the master and we don't wanna be chiseled at anymore. I've talked about my own walk in marriage at times where I'm just like, Lord, could we just stop chiseling away at this piece? But the idea of going back to where I was is nauseating. And the idea of going forward into the unknown is terrifying. The reality for our Christian lives, and this is so just counter to everything that we believe, the idea is not to have no master, it's to have the right one. And the reason it's so important for us to lead a surrendered life is because sin will leave us completely wrecked. And without the Lord, it's what we'll find our way into over and over again. This series has been uh, kind of a, a small study in not just the idea of how do we walk out of our sin, but how do we continue to walk out of sin. It's not just about the journey you're in now, it's about all the journeys that have yet to come. And the biggest thing that I can hand off to you today as we wrap this series up is this. The surrendered life is the best option you have. I've tried it so many other ways. David's tried it so many other ways. His power and authority were completely unprecedented and nobody was more powerful than he was. And as we've looked at his life for the last month, what we've seen is he's at his best when he's with the Lord. He's at his worst when he's on his own. We're gonna take some time today as we have for the last couple of weeks and we're just gonna respond in song. What I hope is that you can see today the reality that in all the places where we've felt so alone, all those places where you may, that, that, that example may have resonated, that you are hiding the spiritual cancer of your life from God, the only one who can help restore you. And today there might just be a moment where you need to stand before the Lord, and this song is perfectly position to do this with you, but just sing this out to the Lord for those places where you feel stuck, for those places where you feel lost, those places where you've been running from God. Sit back and sing the words of this song as we all now sing into a new reality. We've taken a month to study what it looks like to walk out of our broken places and to walk into something new. And let me pray over us as we move into a concept of surrendering all that we have. God, my prayer today is this. It's just simply that you would be with each and every one of us, 
Lord, as we sit back and we think about our lives, Lord, maybe that some of the examples that have been used throughout this series have drawn our attention to a specific area where you have us in a journey right now. Lord, would you help us relinquish those things to you? Lord, would you help us hand over the reins of our life to a master who will lead us and guide us in a great way? That we trust you to carve and to work and to chisel on the minuscule knowing that you are working on something monumental as you do what only you can do and you work in those secret places of our heart to continue to transform us. The whole concept of what this series has been is for us to be transformed to look more like you, but to do that, we have to look less like us. Father, my prayer is just that now as we respond in song, that you would move our hearts, you would continue to convict us and move us through our restoration seasons. We pray this in your name, amen.